Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see you and especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you and thank you for making us your church home for an hour today. Uh, as you know, if you've been tuning in for the past month, I have not been here. I take the month of February off every year to retool and to recuperate, rest, and find God in a special way. I went to some used uh, bookstores uh, in Frederick, Maryland, and Virginia, and just rummaged around in the Christian section trying to find some real gems, kind of a treasure hunt. Um, I went on vacation with my family. I read some good books. I'm reading an excellent book called Word in the Spirit by R.T. Kendall right now. Just really, really rich. And um, I have enjoyed the company of my family. Uh, my wife is just fun to be around. I love her with all of my heart. And moments like this allow me the privilege to get to know her better. And there's a lot to know of her. But I am back now. And I hope you've enjoyed the people who have been in this seat or on this stage. Pastor Tim Say was last week. Um, he's from Crossover Church in Maryland. He's one of my best friends. Since 1982, he's the first Washingtonian that warmly greeted me when I came here to help start this church. And so it's been, what, 39 years we've been walking together? Like, wow. He's quite a leader, quite a man, excellent husband, great dad, and a wonderful friend. Before him, you had Stephen Mansfield, a person who is a part of our vision and staff here and what we want to do to see Washington, D.C. Impacted, impacted significantly for Jesus. And he did a fabulous job in preaching. And before that, you had Pastor A.J. McGraw, who's also on staff with us. Uh, I don't know where he got those little magnetic box blocks, whatever they were, but those were cool. And the, 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 the principles and points he made on that was just outstanding. Um, and today <clears throat> I am presenting to you, um, without being here in person, those of you who are watching via video, virtually, you don't care. <laughs> but if you are here in the room, you realize that I am not here. Why? Because I am preaching at our congregation in uh, Los Angeles, California this weekend, uh, believing that God is going to do something very special with Pastor Dehan and Julie Lee out there. So I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to minister to you as I minister to them. Uh, I'd like to talk to you today about something that I believe prophetically is going on in our world. And when I say prophetically, I'm not pretending to be a prophet. I'm not. But I hear from God every once in a while and have senses that uh, lean me in a direction that allow me to be more effective than if I hadn't gone that way. Those senses come from a push from God, a nudge. A prompting in the Holy Spirit about how I ought to be, what I ought to do, and what I ought to say. And today I'd like to preach to you a message on effective righteousness. Uh, we're going to be looking in Second Peter chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 5 through 7. Second Peter chapter 2, excuse me, verses 5 through 10. 5 through 10. The title of the message is Effective Righteousness. Verse 5 says, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Verse 6, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And, verse 7, If he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, 
For by, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially, verse 10, those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Lord, help us as we study your word. Peter is highlighting the points about how God is able to distinguish the wicked from the righteous. And sometimes we're not, at least not effectively, not righteously. We sometimes ascribe much more wickedness to people that we don't like and kind of let those we do like go. Not be near as judgmental to them. And we surely aren't as judgmental to ourselves as we are to others. We cry for mercy every time we do something wrong. We want judgment to be given to those who do wrong to us. God says this. I know how to make sure that I can distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous. And there are many prophets today talking about judgment. Judgment in the world. Judgment in America. Judgment in the Commonwealth of of Virginia. I don't know what that means. I do know that we are under discipline from God because things that happen that we cannot control that affect all of us at the same time cannot be seen as anything other than the discipline of Almighty God, especially when a nation has been going in the wrong direction like we have for decades, decades. And we have things that we have yet to resolve for hundreds of years. And so at some point, the, 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 the crop grows up and the harvest comes in the barn. You only can reap what you sow. And we have sown some bad seed. Now, that does not mean that America is completely bad. There are so many good things about it. And that's why I'm talking about this message today. What it means for us to see God distinguished between. There are people who are right. Hopefully, you. (laughs) And God knows how to distinguish between those who are right and those who are wrong, even in the midst of difficulty. Meaning this, the world has been going through a tough time. But it is amazing how this congregation has been going through much less of a tough time. Uh, COVID has not hit us proportionately has it as it has hit the rest of the world. We are so grateful to God. It has nothing to do with our compliance with CDC requirements, although those are important. It has nothing to do with your good management of your, your, your hygiene, although that is important. It has everything to do, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm seeming hyperbolic right now, but I don't want to minimize the grace of God. It has everything to do with God's particular care for you and this house. And he is well able to distinguish between the righteous and the, and the unrighteous. If you look at the book of Revelation which is a scary book for many of you. Uh, It starts off in chapter 2 and chapter 3 with seven churches to whom Jesus is addressing some very important issues. And in every church, almost every church, there are two churches out of that, out of those seven, that don't get much of of a corrective tone. It's more of a encouraging tone, and I'm proud of you. But the five that are given correction, God also gives hope. Meaning that he says, those of you who need to repent, you need to repent in the church. But those who don't, you're not doing the wrong thing? I have nothing to say. And all of you, if you overcome, I'm well able to bless you. God is able to distinguish between the wicked and the righteous. The the, the ones who do wrong and the ones who do right. He is well able to do that. 
So I don't have to be concerned when God begins to bring judgment upon those who aren't doing his will because I know he is able to keep me in the midst of his judgment. Here, Peter says, God did something really unusual in past times and he is well able to do it in these times. Well, those times for us are past times as well as Peter's writing that letter, but it's an encouragement to us for us to know that God is well able to distinguish. But in that distinguishing, most Christians are satisfied with just not being taken away with all of the the unrighteous. I'm not. I'm not satisfied with not being judged. And this is, this is the point I want to talk about today. Effective righteousness. It says that Lot had his righteous soul vexed while he was in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. And what this righteous man saw tormented his soul, Peter says. Let me give you the story of how Lot got to where he was and who Lot was. Lot was the nephew, if you will, of of Abraham. Abraham is the central figure in the Old Testament upon which the promises of God flow down through the people we now know as Israel and all the way to the Gentile world through the covenant of the cross. Abraham was the progenitor. He was the father of our faith in Genesis chapter 12. He and Sarai birthed a son named Isaac who birthed a son named Jacob who birthed the 12 tribes of Israel. And thus we have the covenant people that would carry the word all the way down to the church and then the church would then carry the world to the, uh, carry the word to the world. Um, Lot was Abraham's charge. Lot had a brother named Haran who died. Excuse me. Abraham had a brother named Haran who died. Haran had a son named Lot. We believe Abraham was the eldest son in his family because it was the responsibility of the eldest son to care for the children of a sibling who had passed. And Lot was was then now Abraham's charge. As Abraham came into the promised land, Lot was with him. And we think Lot was young enough to, be, to, to, to need caring for or else he could have stayed with his family in Ur of the Chaldees or in Haran where he was. But because Abraham had to carry him through, we think he wasn't old enough to be able to provide for himself. So he became Abraham's charge. And as they came into the promised land, uh, Lot had some of the stuff from his father, Haran. His herds, his flocks... And so you had a group of people in two different camps that, that made up one people. Abraham's people, of which there were 318 men trained in his own household. We know that because when he went to war to rescue Lot, uh, it, it numbers the people that he had to train for that battle. And all of the wives and children of those 318 men and their herds that supported them and their flocks that supported them Uh, So it could have been just in Abraham's uh, company alone, 2,000 people 
It was not just Abraham and Sarah coming through the wilderness with a couple of sheep uh, riding a donkey. He was a people. And then Lot probably had as many as did Abraham. Well, there came a point where as they were traveling together, the land was not able to support both groups of people. There just wasn't enough grass, wasn't enough water to support all the flocks and herds. And the, the herdsmen and the, and the shepherds began to quarrel with one another. Lot's herdsmen and shepherds quarreled with Abraham's herdsmen and shepherds. Herdsmen and shepherds. And it got to Abraham's ears. This is in Genesis chapter 13. Big Abraham, as he is, said this. Listen, let there not be a quarrel between you and me, Lot. You pick where you want to go in this land. And I'll go the other direction. Boy, Abraham's big. He knew that God had given him the promised land. And he was not threatened that somebody else might take a piece of it. Because he knew that which God gives, nobody can take. And if he hasn't given it, you can't get it. Lot, choose what you want. And I'll go the other direction. And Lot looked down into a valley that was the greenest piece of property in the promised land. At least that's what the Bible describes it as being. And Lot went that direction. It happened to be the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham went the other way, and it's amazing. Right after Lot leaves, God shows up with Abraham and says, Look to the north, the south, east, and west. As far as your eye can see, I've given it to you. It did not matter what Lot decided to do. God had given the property to Abraham. Now, Lot made a big mistake. What you want to do is you want to hang around the principal hinge of, of history. You don't want to leave him. Lot should have stayed, even if it meant his sheep were a little skinnier. Even if it meant his, his cattle just didn't have enough beef on him to, 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 to slaughter him and, and, and eat him. You stay with Abraham. You don't leave this man God talks to. Lot, has, he, has God ever talked to you? Has he shown up in your presence? Has he given you any promises? Hang with him and you will be blessed. Uh, Lot made decisions based on finances. And because he couldn't get enough resources from the land, he decided to split with the principal hinge of history. Now, it does say that Abraham said, let us separate. But it doesn't mean that Abraham was the cause of the separation. Abraham was the one who said, Lot, I'm going to care for you. Come with me to the promised land. He wasn't trying to get rid of him. He just realized that Lot's men, herdsmen, shepherds, Lot, we're not in to trying to figure out how to bring peace and reconciliation. He says, we're going to stop all this. You choose. We can't live like this anymore. I'm not going to war with you every day of my life, Lot. I'm not. So you choose. And he let Lot go. Lot, instead of fighting for his own, should have been fighting to figure out how in the world Abraham's flocks could get the best piece of property because God would have provided for him. He always does. He always does. And as a result of Lot's wandering eye, looking for greener pasture, he went down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, bad decision. Nobody thought the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were hospitable and worthy of being lived in. Nobody. But Lot did. And he winds up camping out there. Because he is a, a significant leader in that he's got resources, he seems to have some prowess in the city so much so 
that an event happens that signifies uh, who he was and how uh, he was going to be rescued from this horrible event that was to occur. Somewhere around year 24 of Abraham being in the promised land, God shows up. And he shows up primarily because he's going to see if the cry that has come up to him against Sodom and Gomorrah can be verified. Is there justification for what people say on the planet with respect to judging these two cities? So he comes down. But he comes down within eyesight of Abraham. Abraham sitting at the tent the doorway of his tent, and he sees these three. I don't know what it means. Two angels and, and a theophany, the person of Jesus, if you will, before Jesus was encased in a human body. Uh, we're not quite sure what this was, but we definitely know it was something on, on the order of God appearing to man. Three men in Genesis chapter 18 show up, and Abraham realizes this is God. He runs up to him, bows down, and says, please stop off. Can you get a cup of coffee with me? And they stop at Abraham's tent. The point of them being there was not to go to Abraham's tent. The point of them being there was to go down and see if the cry uh, that has come up to, 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 from the earth to him warrants the justification of dealing with these people called Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham says, come this way. Abraham had such clout with God that God stopped his appointment with judgment in order to sit down with him. How's your relationship with the Lord? Can you encourage him to come have a cup of coffee with you when he's got something else to do? <laughs> it, began, it, it became more than just a cup of coffee. Abraham went out and found an animal from the flock, slaughtered it. It was an all-day event, a meal. And, and God stayed for the entire meal. Hospitality was given. It was really, really special. Abraham treated these men with great honor. At the end of the meal... God says this, uh, by the way, this time next year, you're going to have a son, you and Sarah. Wow. Hospitality seems to be that which builds on-ramps to your blessing. I know it means that you're going to have to sacrifice so that somebody else can gain from your efforts. That's hospitality. It is securing somebody else's benefit at your expense and making them feel very special, honored, whether it's food, whether it's raiment, whether it's a bed to sleep in, a roof over their head, hospitality, inviting people into your world that causes you inconvenience and blesses them. Hospitality builds on-ramps to your blessing even when it costs you because God pours out back on you. What would have happened had not Abraham invited these three men to his tent? Remember, God wanted the blessing to come to Abraham and Sarah with respect to them having a kid. He wanted that to happen. But it didn't seem like he was in much of a hurry. <laughs> it had been 24 years since any kind of inkling and about 13 years since God had spoken that you're going to have a son through, through Sarah it, or, or a son that I'm going to bring my, my promises through. It had been quite a while since Abraham and Sarah had any hope of having a child. And every day that passed, it seemed like they were further away from the ability to do what God said was going to happen. I mean, at this point, Sarah was 89, Abraham was 99. They surely weren't becoming more fertile. It didn't seem like God was in a hurry. And if he wanted to make it even more miraculous, it would seem that he would wait longer. But Abraham was hospitable. Invited him in. 
Oh, I'm not trying to put so much emphasis on hospitality that it makes it seem like this was the only reason God did something special for Abraham. I'm just saying that it's a part of the recipe. That when you are hospitable, when you practice hospitality on a regular basis, giving yourself for the benefit of somebody else to make them feel special and honored by meeting the need, when you do that, it builds something by way of an on-ramp of blessing directly to your life. If Abraham had not invited them, the three or the two or however many needed to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah would have gone down and Abraham and Sarah might have gotten their blessing the next year. Invite God to your world. But remember, when you invite him to your world, you have to invite him, not just his hand. Invite him to your world. Serve him. Love him. Help, if you will, by saying, Lord, I give you my hands, my feet, my life. Help him do his will in the earth. And I use that term help very loosely. I realize God doesn't need our help. He just desires our help. He can do everything he wants done better than us. But he asks us to participate in order to bless us. That we might, we might be a part of his plan. Be in the family business. He just wants us to come into that which he has created us to do. So invite him into your life. Be that person that has such a compliant will to, to do his will. That, it, that when you invite him, he feels comfortable coming into your home. Invite him, even if he's going someplace else. Come here and sit down with me. Have a meal with me, my God. You never know what kind of blessing might come. Now, I realize that we need to invite Jesus into our life, no question. But sometimes that inviting Jesus means you invite godly people into your life. To have conversations about what needs to change, how you can be better, what needs to be adjusted. Hospitality is really important. During this time, God then says, <clears throat> not only are you going to have a baby this time next year, but uh, ah, I got this mission down in Sodom and Gomorrah, and I don't know that I can really do what I need to do without consulting Abraham, because he's going to be blessed among all the peoples of the earth. I'm going to bring nations through him, and I don't think I can really do what I need to do to and for Sodom and Gomorrah without consulting him. So, Abraham, uh, I'm going down to find out whether the complaint against Sodom and Gomorrah is true. Um, and Abraham realized, I mean, he knew Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked people. Everybody knew Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked people. I don't have time to go into it, but it was verified. And he knew that if God was coming down to go there, he wasn't going to say hello. He was going to deal with stuff. And so Abraham starts saying, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. If you're going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, would you, would you carry away the righteous with the wicked? I mean, if there were 50 righteous people in the city, would you judge it? God says, no, I would not, Abraham. Uh, okay, well, what, what, can, I, can, I, can I continue my conversation? What if there are 45? No, Abraham, I will not. Oh, well, 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 entertain me just one more. What if there are 30 no, Abraham, I would not. Well, Lord, please listen to me. Uh, what if there are 20? No, Abraham, I would not take the city away. Lord, implore me once more. Um, if there were 10, would you wipe out the righteous and the wicked? No, Abraham, I would not. Abraham didn't have the faith to go below 10. He knew his nephew Lot was there along with his family. 
And he thought, surely, surely, Lot has had enough influence to be able to multiply himself ten times with his wife, his kids, maybe their fiancés. Surely, there's been more than ten. At least ten. Abraham stops. God goes down. And as he arrives in the city, he comes to the gate, and there Lot is. Now, the reason I said earlier is that Lot had, uh, that the reason I said earlier that Lot had influence is because it says when the men came into the city in Genesis chapter 19, that Lot was in the gate of the city. Now, the gate was a place at which most governmental decisions and financial decisions were made. It was like their city hall and chamber of commerce all in one. And these men had some bearing on their lives. They looked different than everybody else. And when Lot saw them, he bowed his face to the ground and said, Oh, welcome to the city. And then Lot invites them to his house. They said, No, we want to stay in the square. He said, mm, And he implored them to come into his home, and they did. And Lot fed them hospitality. Again, hospitality seemed to have been a part of the blessing that protected a lot in, in this moment. It was a blessing in terms of Abraham receiving word that he would have a child at the same time next year, and now it's a protective force. Again, not only hospitality, because it says that God remembered Abraham at the end of chapter 19 when he saved Lot, meaning God remembered Abraham when God saved Lot. But in the process of remembering who Abraham was, Lot participated by inviting these men into his home and and showing them hospitality. Uh, the, the other men from the city come and try to break down the door and take these men and do horrible things to them because they're intimidated by who they are and what they represent. Lot does everything to try to protect them. The men <clears throat> of the city try then to assault Lot. The men who are on the inside, the, the God Almighty, the, the angelic beings, grab out from the door pull Lot back in, shut the door, and put blindness on all of the men of the city. They go to bed. They wake up the next morning. The men say to Lot, get your family out of here. And Lot says, oh, no, I don't want to go. Please don't judge the city. Get your family out because judgment is coming by the end of the day, and I cannot judge this city as I should until you get out. So get out. Lot doesn't want to leave. It literally says the angelic beings took his family by the hand and dragged them out of the city. Long story short, the city was judged. Lot was saved along with his daughters. His wife looked back with fondness uh, toward the city, and she was a resident. She was probably born in that city, and she looked back with fondness in the, on the city, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Lot came out only with his two daughters. It was a sad, sad day. That's the story of Lot. Now, it says here in Peter that this righteous man, Lot, was vexed. He was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. He was a righteous man. But his righteousness didn't make any difference to anybody else. Effective righteousness is that which makes a difference. If it's just about you and you going to heaven, you'll be saved, but everything else around you won't. In prior verse, the one I read, verse 5, it gives a hint. It says that God knew how to separate righteous preacher Noah 
from the flood that he brought upon the ungodly. Ah, it calls Noah righteous, but it also calls him a preacher. How about that? He was a man who was doing something with his righteousness. I said at the beginning of my message, this is prophetic. I'm convinced that there is an element of judgment in our world coming to America and coming to other places as a result of the enormous disobedience and defiance toward God. He has winked. He has been kind. He has been patient. He has been so benevolent in that he has blessed people who are disobeying regularly. It's not because he is ignoring their sin. It's because he is trying to help them get to a place where they can realize their inadequacy, their hypocrisy, their rebellion, and trust in him. He doesn't want people to suffer, and he doesn't want people to die. And so he doesn't judge humanity. He is very kind and very merciful, even to the point of seeming neglectful, of doing righteousness by judging people. Now listen, I know it may not seem right with you, and that you know people that ought to be judged. But think about it for a minute. You better be happy that he's not using that same standard you're using on them, on you. He's long in mercy. Long in mercy. But I do believe that these are the birth pains of difficulty that are coming upon us, things that we just can't avoid and we can't fix. It's going to be like a cascade a, a, a tidal wave, a, a one wave after another that hits us over and again. And I just don't want us as Grace Covenant to become a people that are satisfied with being preserved through it. I want us to have righteousness that is effective, whereby we help a whole lot of people be delivered from the difficulty into the righteous hands and, and arms of Almighty God. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was trying his best to get as many people out as possible. Spare them from judgment. Lot was not. It doesn't call him a preacher. It just says that he was different. He was righteous compared to everybody else. Let your righteousness have an effect now the reality was that nobody else came on the boat with Noah. I get it. But he tried. He tried. I can't affect how people will hear what I say, but I can affect what I say and how I care about folks. If judgment is coming, the last thing I want is for people to experience it. I want them to be delivered from the difficulty. And so I preach. I talk to servers in the restaurant. I minister to people in, 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 in department stores. I reach out to my neighbors. I pray, I fast, and I need to do more. I am not adequate in my presentation nor my service, but I'm trying. I'm begging you, what are you doing beyond Lot? Our righteousness must exceed Lot's. Effective righteousness has an impact on our world. Now, if you don't want what, uh, if you don't want to go past Lot's righteousness, you need, need to do a couple of things. One, make sure you don't leave the people to whom you're supposed to be joined. Don't leave your Abraham. Don't leave the folks that God has tied you to so that you can be better than if you were not tied to them. 
don't leave. Secondly, if you do leave, don't go and hang out with the wicked all the time. Don't, 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 don't just go live in the, in the environment where sin is prevalent and your soul is vexed and you are, are oppressed every day by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Don't do it. But if you do it, put your preach on. Get your preach on. Make sure that you are talking about who Jesus is and what needs to happen. It is going to be more difficult in our world. What are we going to do? Stay in our little silos? Be insulated from the difficulty because we know we hide under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty in Psalm 91? Is that enough? No. I'm begging you. Try to get as many people in your tent as possible. And if your tent isn't big enough, stretch the tent pegs. Figure out what it means to make your righteous standing before Almighty God effective in this world and not be satisfied with just being delivered all by yourself. You're going to heaven. Happy! What about your neighbor? What about your cousin? What about your uncle? What about your coworker? What about your friend's soccer mom? What about those around you in your sphere of influence? Where are they? Judgment is on the way. Whether it's the kind of judgment we're experiencing that's in a moderate, moderate amount that our society is going through or whether it's uh, an, 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 an ultimate judgment that all of us are going to experience at some point and that we're going to pass from this earth and stand before Almighty God. Judgment is inevitable. For the believer, it's not a judgment when we pass from this world about whether we're going to heaven or hell. It's a judgment on rewards or none. But for the unbeliever, it's about whether you go to a place of damnation or whether you go to a place of bliss. All of us are headed toward judgment at some point. What are we going to do about those people who have no hope and no God in this world? I beg you, let your righteousness exceed that of lots. If we do, then the thousands of folks that call Grace Covenant home might just change Washington. We might just fulfill the dream that God has given us and help win this city to him. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. I thank you for your goodness and grace. Empower us as a people to be folks who are effective in righteousness. Is there anybody <clears throat> this morning who has yet to give their heart to Christ? Maybe you've made a decision in the past, but your life doesn't look anything like what a believer's ought to be. And today you want to make a change. If you fit in either of those categories, never giving your heart to Christ or giving your heart and then kind of taking it back, here's a moment for you to repent and come home. If you fit in that category, whether you're in the sanctuary or whether you're watching, watching virtually, raise your hand. If you're watching virtually, just uh, there's a little box at the, at the bottom of the check excuse me, at the bottom of the chat, a little box you can check that allows you to know what it means to have somebody contact you and, and, and pray with you about the decision you're making today. If you want to make that change, I want you to pray with me. Say, Father in heaven, forgive me. I am sorry for the way I've lived. I choose to turn away from everything I know to be sin and to follow you with all of my heart. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. And thank you for giving me the privilege 
calling Jesus the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer and you're in this room, we've got a New Believers Toolkit here for you. It's a Bible, a Bible study, pen and a pad. You can pick it up out at the uh, information desk in the lobby. If you made the decision online, please check that little box I spoke of earlier. Another box will show up. Check that one. Uh, somebody will contact you and help you with the decision you made so that you can be effective in your version of new righteousness. If you have any prayer needs at all, you can go to the top of the chat, check the box, and somebody will contact you about those things which are most important to your life. Church, we have a great opportunity. God has given us the ability to obey him. Let's obey him at the nth level. Let's do it in a way that impacts our world so that the world can feel and receive the benefits of the cross. Bless you. You're the absolute best. It's my privilege to be able to serve you.